You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Hello, friends. Happy New Year. This is episode number 357, and I am so excited to chat with you and to be a part of your life this year and hopefully beyond this year. We are coming up on seven years with the podcast, and it's really been one of my favorite things that I have done and maintained, and it's because I get to connect in a way that I really can't through any other platforms with all of you. And I just love being able to interview so many incredible people and maintaining my relationship with Stephanie and being able to just chat with her. Like, I think it's just so important to have women in our lives who we can talk to and sort of like break down what we're seeing and experiencing and how we're feeling as we age as we mature. And so I love that I get to do that with Stephanie. I love that I get to do that with all of you. And I'm just, I'm really happy to be here. This episode, by the way, I'm Noelle Tarr. If you if this is your first time here, uh, my website is coconutsandkettlebells.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner. I'm a certified personal trainer. Today is going to be another renewed episode. Next week, Steph and I are going to be back here live. I for this episode, this is another one of my most favorite episodes that I that we have on the Well Fed Women podcast. This is an interview with functional medicine practitioner Bree Wesselman. This episode was really question-specific, so a lot of you sent in these really great and in-depth questions about chronic healing chronic digestive issues, and specifically SIBO, which is Bree's specialty. So we talked a lot about just bloating and you know, common digestive symptoms like diarrhea and constipation and and what that means. And she also specializes in women's hormones. So she's really, she does a great job at connecting the two and helping us understand what our symptoms actually mean and how to fix the root cause of the issue so that the symptoms resolve, which is what I love about functional medicine. We look at the root cause of things. Not We don't just try to fix, you know, put a Band-Aid and try to fix the symptoms. We look at the root cause and we and we go after the root cause. And that's, Bree's amazing. And um, this episode is going to be so helpful and so enlightening as we head into a new year and just work on our health. Before we dive in, I have something new, y'all, that I'm really excited about. Um I've made some hints to this in our Facebook group because when I try some new things, it's really hard for me to not talk about it because it becomes such a big part of my day. But about a year ago, I stopped drinking coffee and it was I was actually this podcast. I talked to Krista Beegler about how coffee can really make you more anxious. And I realized that my coffee was making me really jittery and spun up in the mornings and it was hindering my sleep. And so I stopped drinking it. But what I miss about caffeine is that nice little pick-me-up and that increase in focus. And I feel like I kind of want 
that. I still want that. You know, I have little kids and I just I want to pick me up. OK, don't don't hate on me for the pick me ups. So I started becoming more interested in something called adaptogens, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. They are herbs and functional mushrooms that help your body adapt to stress. They essentially sort of like boost your resistance and tolerance when it comes to emotional and physical stress, and they provide your body with the support it needs only when it needs it. Research actually shows adaptogens can balance cortisol, combat fatigue, enhance focus, ease depression and anxiety, and support proper hormone function. Now, that is a lot of things that I would like to benefit from. So after looking at a lot of different ways to supplement with adaptogens and support immunity, I found a little something called red juice from Organifi. Now, I am not a juicer. I don't like protein shakes. I know a lot of people do. But the more I researched, the more I realized the easiest and best way to enjoy adaptogens is with these like superfood blends that can be added to water. And I really, really love it, especially mid-morning when I'm looking for a pick-me-up. So while Organifi, they make a ton of different adaptogen blends, their red juice is specifically designed for energy support. It's like a red berry antioxidant blend. It has potent like adaptogens. It has cordyceps, rhodiola, and reishi. And cordyceps is one of my favorite functional mushrooms because it really does boost energy and immunity and stamina. It's kind of like a mom adaptogen. <laughs> I have totally fallen in love with Organifi. All their superfood blends are 100% certified organic. They contain high-quality ingredients, and they're free of fillers. And they also, like, taste really, really good, which is really important. Um, they have a variety of drinks, including ones that are great for morning, midday, and then evening. Some mix better with cold. Some mix better with warm water, which they have a bunch of insight on their website. So I actually also have the green juice. I take that in the morning, too. But they also have something at night called like a gold chocolate drink. And it's really great at night because it has reishi and it's very calming and relaxing. Support your body, energy, and immunity and stress with Organifi. I reached out to them and I asked them to support the podcast and they said yes, which I was so thankful for. I think you guys are going to love it. Um, they really take pride in offering the best tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. Uh, our, our link is Organifi.com slash WellFed, and our code is WellFed for 20% off your order. That's a lot. 20% off is huge. Again, Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash WellFed. Use our code WellFed for 20% off your order. Now let's get to my interview with Bree. Bree Whistleman is a functional medicine practitioner and a gut and hormone specialist. She runs an online functional medicine clinic that focuses on helping women optimize their health. She is the person to know when it comes to resolving digestive problems such as IBS, ulcerative colitis, parasite infections, candida overgrowth, and SIBO, which we're going to be discussing today. She has some incredible and comprehensive articles on her website. I was poking around there yesterday and a killer Instagram with lots of content, which I'll link to both in the show notes. Well, Welcome, Brie. 
Thank you. Wow. Am I excited to be here Just <laughs> checking out your board? Um, your, your women are like, gosh, they're like my favorite kind of tribe. They're just brilliant and self-educated and motivated. And they ask some really like sassy and specific questions. And it's yeah. going to be fun. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> I actually have been looking for somebody to talk about SIBO and these really complicated digestive issues for quite some time. And you, we were introduced through a, a mutual acquaintance. And I was so excited when, when she had like, I was like, do you know anybody that really talks about SIBO and these these issues? And she's like, yes, I do. So um, I have been super giddy. And it's so funny thinking about it. I'm like, I'm so excited to talk about SIBO. <laughs> but it is just one of those things like we were talking about before we jumped on the call is that, you know, it's one of those things that's really hard to understand. And a lot of people know surface level information about it. But very rarely do we find people like yourself who are very educated on the ins and outs of all of the things that could be happening, including, you know, what to ha what do we what do I do now if the test comes back negative and what tests should I do? And what if I have other things going on like mold in my house? Like there's so many things that can play into this and gut health is so um it can be really complicated because, you know, hormones play into that as well. And you know about both of those things. So I really appreciate you. Um you know, taking the time to be here because I know you have a, a lot else going on and, and a full practice, which we'll we'll talk about more later. Um, I know like so many of us, you have your own story struggling with a variety of digestive and hormonal issues throughout your life. What made you decide to become a functional medicine practitioner and choose that alternative mm. health route for, for helping people? Yeah. So, you know, like pretty much all of us, I had my own health journey. So, you know, the the couple of outbreath version of that looked like I had ex like severe, severe asthma as a kid and was just on tons of medications, corticosteroids, various inhalers. A lot of them were kind of like speed. And those really set my uh, nervous system into this kind of fight or flight at baseline. And then through the rest of my um, childhood and young adulthood, I had some eating disorders. So I, you know, gathered up some nutrient deficiencies and had um, PCOS, which actually was something that I diagnosed myself around age 23 or so. It was, you know, not a diagnosis that was common prior to that, except in the classic textbook cases. So it wasn't something that was talked about a lot. Um, and I went through all these things because of those um, issues, like having panic attacks and having this very severe insomnia for about six years and having, you know, constant bloating and gas and then having acne that nothing would would budge. Um, and I had started out in the herbal medicine world, actually. And one of my teachers early on in the herb schools that I went to was teaching us the pathophysiology and physiology that later became called functional medicine. Um, and after that, I went to Chinese medicine school um, to get a, an actual medical degree in, in California where primary care. And um, but always during my that education, while I was doing my medical degree, I was studying what was functional medicine, the lab testing and the ways of looking at those things, because I really kind of perceived them to be Chinese medicine and Western clothing in that we're talking about this um, relationship between our tissues and organ systems that is they're all inextricably linked and they all influence each other. So that's kind of how I got to do this with solving my own problems. <laughs> yeah. Did you always know that you wanted to help people online or is that something that you you did just as like more out of a necessity, which I, <laughs> I did too? 
<laughs> you, you want to know the story about that one, actually? That's a great question. I don't think anyone's asked me that on a podcast. So I actually didn't know that I wanted to work online. What happened was that I was a had a brick and mortar practice. I worked also in some IVF clinics and I worked um, in a clinic with some other people working with uh, patients who had hepatitis C and were using. So in all of those settings, it was people using both Western and, and Chinese medicine simultaneously. And I loved that integrative setting. Um, and I had a private practice as well. And so I was doing those things. And then what happened was some of my clients started moving away and just didn't want to lose touch with me because they said, I don't really know anyone who works like you. And so I just started doing Skype appointments with them. Um, and then a couple of years after that, I, um, did a training with Dr. Daniel Kalish at Kalish Institute. Um, he's one of my mentors and, um, he, I think he had done, you know, kind of a hybrid model where he'd seen some on, uh, online and some uh, in person. And so I started to say, oh, that's something I could do. And then uh, fast forward a few years and um, the guys at scdlifestyle.com, um, Steve and Jordan, um, needed some people to work with their uh, clients. And um, to make a long story short, myself and one of my colleagues wound up working with all of their patients for a, a number of um for a little while before we then separated back out into private practice. Um, and so through that, I saw like maybe in, I think six months, I saw maybe like 300 of their clients online. And so, yeah. So then I had this like online aspect of my practice and over time, that's just become more and more and more viable. Um, just in terms of that, I'm able to help more people. And, and really there's people who don't have someone near them or, or, yeah. um, yeah. So that's how the online thing happened. That's amazing. And what a beautiful setup for what has been the craziness of 2020. Like you've been able to help people and be there for people, you know, all over the country, all over the world. Um, thanks to, you know, the little thing called the internet and Zoom and Skype. And so I love that. I just think it's so interesting when people, uh, we've definitely seen this move in the medical field going uh, what I would consider to be more of the holistic alternative health field, people mm -hmm. are moving from in person to online, and it seems to be serving people a lot better. So I just think that's really cool. I love to see how people, you know, come to be in that in that arena. So awesome. Mm -hmm. Let's jump in because we have so many questions. First, I, I just I would love to get some inform like foundational information about digestive issues. Um, talk to me about why digestive issues are so common specifically for women? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, there's a number of factors and a couple of these factors are ubiquitous. Like they're not just re relevant to women, but then there's some that are specific to women. So I'm going to say, you know, I'll start from the general and move towards the specific, but um, the number, I think really the number one thing, uh, I have to say the number one, number two, but stress, just the world we've created and our constant fight or flight lifestyle. And I, I really feel like, you know, people hear this from every, probably everyone who comes on your um, show, but on your podcast, but like, it's really true. The role of stress and just the baseline stress that we're under to just live in today's world and keep up. And then there's, you know, the added burden on women specifically, like this is called the second shift syndrome, but like, especially when you become a mother and it's not that women who don't, uh, choose to walk as mothers on this world in this lifetime or who, you know, for whatever reason are not mothers aren't also under a tremendous amount of stress. But also when you're juggling, like, you know, maybe running a business or your work and all the other parts of life, and then you come home and you're um, dealing with, you know, running a household, a lot of that 
extra kind of mental burden often falls on women just because for whatever reason, we tend to be a little bit more wired that way, you know, to be multitascular <laughs> instead of um, multitesticular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love so there's it. that piece. <laughs> okay. The other piece is like pesticides, pesticide and chemical exposure that is everywhere. And like, especially glyphosate is such an issue for the gut. And we know we've heard lots about glyphosate in the last couple of years, but it's just, you know, basically a huge driver of leaky gut and dysbiosis. Um, that's a big problem. And that, that stuff is everywhere, you know, like, like, you know, glyphosate's in pretty much all grains now, even organic grains, it, you know, by drift. Um, there's also things like in the last, you know, maybe, uh, you know, in the last 60, 70 years, chronic abuse of antibiotics for things like, you know, they're just doled out, as we know, for things like acne and ear infections and bladder infection and upper respiratory infections that they're really pretty much most of the time not necessary for. They can definitely be life-saving in instances, but like, you know, I've treated all of those things and a lot of things that people think can't be treated using like herbal and especially Chinese herbal medicine just fine, you know? And so, um, it's just not, those options aren't offered to us and people don't know about them. You find yourself ill and by no fault of our own, we're just going to go for what's going to work and help us get better. But that has shifted our general population microbiomes in this huge way. So, and, and not just our generation, but our microbiomes are inherited. So like if our, you know, parents' microbiomes or our grandparents' microbiomes were disrupted, you know, we've inherited already a microbiome that is less diverse with less of those keystone species than say, you know, some of the places where we still see in pretty remote tribal cultures, there's still some more intact microbiomes, right? Once these get disrupted, there's definitely rehabbing we can do, or I wouldn't have a job, but it's hard to get them back to that like super primal state, right? So there's that piece. And then for women specifically, um, the role of uh, oral contraceptive pills is huge. They are as, um, you know, in terms of the Im impact on the gut, they can be as as bad as antibiotics. And by saying that, I'm not trying to shame anyone because there's definitely, you know, it's a viable, uh, it's a legit option in some cases or for some reasons. But, um, you know, birth control is being handed out without us being educated and fully informed and then having choice in the matter um, is is a problem, I think. So many things. And you're right. We do talk about stress a lot, but I don't think we can talk about stress enough because it's one of those things that people gloss over and forget about. You know, we we especially now this year, I'm sure you've seen an influx in your practice, but I do feel like there's just been this influx of people with issues, more anxiety, of course, but even more deep rooted, more gut issues, more hormone imbalances and the our our phys like the way stress affects our physiology is just so profound and i do feel like sometimes people have a hard time understanding what stress is but you know if you are not sleeping if you're trying to work out 8 days a week and you're trying to you know keep a full-time job and like you said also tend to babies and you know you're in an argument with your husband and now you know a family member just got sick like it it all piles on and it 
can actually facilitate and lead to gut issues. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's so true. Uh, you know, even the other like you can you'll IBS diagnosis is handed out left and right. And that's just a constellation of symptoms that is a syndrome. So it's not actually a diagnosis. It's just a description of what you're experiencing. And then we have people who actually have, you know, um, visual or physical assessments. So they have some maybe have something that they're told like, OK, you have inflammatory bowel disease or you have, um, you know, GERD or reflux problems of some sort. And even those are really descriptions of a pathology, descriptions of a problem. And yeah, there's certain drugs that can be given, but they're not actually looking at like, well, why did this happen? Right? Our body doesn't just break. Our body's always on our side. It's got our back. It's doing it the best it knows how to try and accommodate or support our physiology given its circumstances, right? So we have to explore what are those circumstances. Um, so some of the things that I see are, you know, obviously, we're here to talk about SIBO and candida. So dysbiosis and gut infections is like the larger umbrella of that. So that would include things like um, gastrointestinal parasites, um, dysbiosis of like the colon, just like the wrong balance of bacteria, um, bacterial overgrowth of the small or large intestine, um, which is just not necessarily bad bacteria, but too many bacteria in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or in the case of the colon, it's usually dysbiosis. Then there's things like candida and fungal overgrowths. But also there's slightly more obscure things like chronic viral infections, um, you know, and then biotoxin issues like from mold, so mycotoxins or from tick-borne disease. Those are all things we see. Um, then there's the umbrella of stress and quote-unquote adrenal fatigue or HPA axis dysregulation. Um, that is huge. I would say that that kind of underlies every other one of these. And we can talk more about why that is later and how one leads to the other. Um, but definitely, that's a huge aspect. Um, literally having dysregulation in those adrenal hormones can make it so that you cannot do the cell turnover and tissue repair to heal a leaky gut, um, which is in and of itself another root cause. So leaky gut. Um, and then uh, food allergies and sensitivities. Um, Nutrient deficiencies, especially um, zinc and vitamin A and D, and as you alluded to, magnesium deficiency, which is pretty much an epidemic. I mean, literally everyone I test has almost always suboptimum magnesium unless they've been supplementing well and for a long time. Uh, yeah, it's kind of wild. I see that on an um, ion or organic acids panel regularly. Um, and there, we can talk more about that. Well, that could be a whole show. Um, <laughs> and then detox overwhelm issues. So again, going back to the pesticides, the chemical exposure, the heavy metals, the molds, the genetic methylation issues, and also endotoxins that are generated from dysbiosis issues in the gut. Those are all things that can contribute to kind of overburdening, you know, too much paperwork on, on the desk of our liver and, and the rest of the detox organs. So I know it's it's super complicated to try to figure out your root, your own root cause, because, <laughs> you know, you mentioned a lot of things there and it's like, well, it could be that it could be that. But, you know, how does some what's the first step before we get into questions like yeah. somebody, what do you recommend as like a first step for somebody to figure out what is their root cause? Is there something they can do before they get testing done or should they just sort of like go mm. to somebody who knows what they're talking about and consider getting testing done? done? Yeah, well, um, I'm, a, I, I'm a DIYer and like a, 
you know, anarchist activist at heart. And so like, I I get that. I want to give people something to do. I don't want to just put the plug, like go work with a practitioner. But I will say like, if you're in a hurry or not even a hurry, if you want to kind of get to cut to the chase, I definitely think working with um, a trained practitioner. And also, even if you are a practitioner working with someone else, because it's really hard to be objective to ourselves. So um, can help tremendously. Like we don't heal alone. We're not meant to heal alone. We're not islands. So there's that. Um, and then the other thing is, um, there's this saying in Chinese medicine, it translates into like, you're entitled to more than one problem at the same time, (laughs) which, (laughs) which means that that is the norm, not the exception. So like a lot of people come to me and they're like, well, I'm trying to figure out if I have detox issues really driving like my hormone thing, or if it's dysbiosis. And I'm like, honey, it's, it's all of it. Like, you know, so, so, um, that can sound really overwhelming and that's where testing can really help because working with a practitioner can help you put things in a logical, rational order of both how and why we got here. Like I'll give you a map, right? How did we get here? And also what is the sequential and systematic, um, order of operations to get us to where we want to be? It's so helpful. Right. And so there's some amount of experimenting with diet or experimenting with things that are um, pretty safe across the board, like really powerful probiotics, um, you know, eating in a calm environment and chewing your food. Like all of those things are functional medicine. All of those things are treatment and, you know, doing active stress management. So absolutely, people should get started with that stuff beforehand. Um, But for example, it's really hard for someone to say like, well, I have real bad bloating and constipation and go, oh, well, you have SIBO because that may or may not be true. And even if it is true, if you've got some other stuff going on in the background, it's like, you know, um, apps running in the background of your smartphone, taking up bandwidth, like you're just not going to get the app you're working with to like work well, if you've got all this other stuff going on behind it. Yeah. If you are so done being tired and fatigued and overstimulated and not being able to fall asleep and waking up a lot in the middle of the night, I feel you. I've been there. I was wired and tired And I didn't know why I was just feeling so just overwhelmed with just like a sense of almost nervousness and anxiety. And it wasn't until I had this light overhaul in my house that I could tell how much blue light from my computer and my phone, overhead light, how all of that was affecting me. And I was able to do that with the help of Blue Blocks. So Blue Blocks makes computer and sleep plus glasses, which help to block out, the computer glasses help to block out the harsh light that we see when we're looking at our screens all day, every day, when we're looking at, you know, our phone. And then the sleep plus glasses are actually evidence-based. They block out all the wavelengths that are clinically shown to suppress melatonin production, which we so desperately need to be able to fall asleep quickly and to have good sleep quality. And it's really a vicious cycle because once you're not sleeping well and yes, fall asleep really late, then your melatonin production is really just not online. And then you just kind of, your sleep gets worse and worse. So stop the cycle, get Blue Blocks Sleep Plus glasses. If you're going to invest in one pair, that's what I highly recommend starting with. So the Sleep Plus glasses, they have an orange tint. You can put them on. It's now part of our nightly routine. Put them on about two hours before bedtime when you're just starting to wind down. I understand, like, 
Everybody says, don't have screens on two hours before bed. But some of us have to work after the kids go down, and some of us want to watch our shows. And that is where these sleepless glasses come into play, and they save the day. So invest in some Sleep Plus glasses. The lenses are really attractive. I like the way they feel. I don't even know they're there. And they look good. I like the way they look, which is important. I think that's really important. Um, And if you've bought like orange lensed glasses before and they didn't work, it's because they weren't properly blocking all of the wavelengths that have been shown to suppress melatonin production. So investing in a pair of Sleep Plus glasses is, is investing in your sleep for in your like proper hormone production for the rest of your life for years to come blueblocks.com forward slash well-fed that's our link it's b-l-u b-l-o-x.com forward slash well-fed use our code well-fed for 15 percent off they can also turn any pair of glasses into custom blue blockers which is pretty cool again that's blueblocks.com forward slash well-fed and then use our code well-fed for 15 percent off so you mentioned before talking about I, this could be an episode in and of itself, but our first question is from Laura and she says, can you discuss the link between digestive issues and stress? And I am a why kind of person. So we mm-hmm. can say stress impacts digestion. But mm-hmm. what is actually like, what are the physiological changes in our body that mm-hmm. then lead to digestive potentially can lead to digestive issues. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's good to get granular about this stuff because, you know, yeah, otherwise we don't really get it. Like, why does that happen? So, um, okay. So here's the thing is, you know, when we talk about stress, um, you know, historically for, for the majority of our existence on the planet, the things that we called stressors kind of like resolved quickly, meaning the end result was either you like lived or you died. And that was kind of the end of the story. We didn't tend to have a lot of these chronic ongoing stressors. So when we talk about stress, I first need to say that like not all stress is bad for you, right? Like if you're writing, uh, you know, a presentation or you're launching something in your business, like that stuff is is potentially helpful and therapeutic stress because it's not harmful. It's like within our control. And we also know that there's like a beginning and an end to it. It's the ongoing unremitting stress and people feeling disempowered to change anything about their situation that really hits our system in terms of the like emotional, what we context as call emotional stress. Um, And then there's a couple other kinds of stress that people don't always think of as stress. One of them is dietary, which is usually like blood sugar swings. So getting hypoglycemic or having like really high blood glucose and then crashing, those actually recruit the same hormones that that we produce when we have like, you know, that um, hypothetical argument with our partner. And then the third kind is inflammation, which is largely, you know, there's a lot of causes of inflammation in the body. But one of the largest drivers would be things like hidden chronic infections. Um, So anyway, what happens is, in response to any of those things, our body, again, doing its best to help us survive, given the scenario, pumps out, it sends, the brain sends a signal to the adrenal glands, and we output a bunch of cortisol. And that helps prime our body, the sequence of events that the cascade that happens after that primes our body to best respond. And what happens is that eventually over time, if that keeps going on and on and on and on regularly, that eventually dysregulates the feedback system between the adrenals and the hypothalamus and pituitary and upsets our adrenal circadian rhythms or our outputs of hormones like cortisol and DHEA. So when your body thinks it's in fight or flight all the time on some level from any of those kinds of stress, 
um, it it does this elegant thing of prioritizing. It downregulates things it considers non-essential or less essential to your immediate survival as compared to the things it perceives to be more long-term. So think things like your digestive secretions. Your body's like, hey, you got to like, you know... Um, you know, run from the bear right now or the hypothetical bear or tiger. So like right now, you don't need to worry about digesting your food. You can do that later. And so it'll shut down things like stomach acid output, pancreatic enzyme, digestive enzyme output, bile flow um, that are essential for digesting your food and accessing the nutrients in those food. And it also kind of shuts down motility. Again, you don't really need to be digesting right now. But most importantly, one of the, I mean, there's a lot of ways that this impacts our physiology, but as it relates to our digestive um, health, those are some of the main issues and also um, shuts down the healing and repair function of our body. So regenerating tissue, which are the cells of our digestive lining, um, regenerate on average every like three days or so. And so there's a lot of cell turnover there. And when you're not doing that repair function, you can easily get leaky gut just by virtue of the stress without any other triggers. Um, and also our immune system gets suppressed because the bulk of our immune system, like something around 80 to 90% lives in the gut. And that's because it's our main doorway into the rest of our body, really, um, and in terms of things getting into bloodstream and circulation. And so we have a whole bunch of bouncers there. Um, that makes sense. And that takes up a lot of, uh, you know, energy, essentially, to run. And so that gets suppressed. And um, are most notably, an agent called secretory IgA, that is an immunoglobulin secreted at the lining of the mucosal barrier membranes, gets low. And that is kind of like, you know, it's like the, the, the guard dog at the doorway has gone to sleep. And so basically, we're very vulnerable to acquiring pathogens or to having um, dysregulation in our own microbiome where we develop overgrowths or dysbiosis. Wow, I don't think I've ever heard it so comprehensively connected, but I mean, it's no question why things like mental anxiety or depression correlate with digestive issues. I mean, it's, you know, they both impact each other and why I, we have a lot of women in our community who have struggled with over-exercising and under-eating and being mm -hmm. stuck in diet culture. And that almost 100% of the time correlates with these digestive issues that are very hard to figure out that are long withstanding because of everything you mentioned and, of course, other things like, you know, ser serious restriction and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, mm -hmm. it's no question why so many of us deal with these digestive issues at the same time we're dealing with. <laughs> or, or, or exposing our body to a lot of additional stress or, or we're being exposed to a lot of additional stress. Mm -hmm. um, okay, this next question is from Sarah. I've never been able to get to the root of my IBS. I can't seem to trace it to stress or any specific food. I've had parasites and leaky gut in the past, but got rid of the parasites. My latest GI map showed slightly dysbiotic bacteria and slightly low secretory IgA. But other than that, it looked great. For me, IBS days mean I get sporadic descending colon that causes trapped gas and pencil thin stool. Really uncomfortable. Would love any advice on getting to the root cause of IBS? Mm. Yeah. So for Sarah, you know, um, a couple of things, a couple of thoughts I had, and again, I'd need to really 
really kind of get into her history. But, you know, my first thought is, hey, have you tested for SIBO? Um, because, you know, I definitely would have run a GI map first. And we can talk about why that is. But I'm glad that she's done that. And it sounds like has done more, more than one. Um, and that's great. But you can't diagnose small intestinal bacterial overgrowth from a stool panel. You just can't. And so, um, you know, up to 80% of people who have been diagnosed with IBS have SIBO and SIBO is largely underdiagnosed. So that's kind of like a, a simple, straightforward, you know, I would run a lactulose and or lactulose and glucose breath testing. Um, also, um, one thing that people should know is that while the GI map is definitely at present my test of choice, and I've run thousands of stool tests um, of various companies. So I love the GI map. And it's really, really good. Um, fungal overgrowth, regard, you know, can, regardless of the quality of the test, can be really, really ha hard to diagnose. So mostly we're talking about candida, but there's a whole family of fungi that act similarly. And they, I found that they can be hidden on lab tests. And um, briefly, there's a couple of reasons for that. One reason is that, you know, if you have a ton of fungal overgrowth and it's down near the colon, then you'll tend to see that shed in the stool sample pretty readily. But if you have a ton of fungal overgrowth and it's up in the upper part of the small intestine or maybe like the esophagus, it's not regularly going to shed into the stool as predictably. So we might see lower levels reflected or none reflected. Um, and also, um, candida can exist in two different forms. It has a yeast and a fungal form. And the yeast form tends to live on like the surface of the mucous membrane, just like we think about like vaginal yeast infection or thrush in the mouth, like you can see it, it's kind of white goopy. And then there's a, a fungal phase, which is where it actually grows these little legs called hyphae and grows into the tissue. So it goes intracellularly and that doesn't always shed as regularly into the samples. So that's another reason it can hide. So for that reason, sometimes I'll, like when I don't see candida on a stool test, I'll take it with a grain of salt and correlate signs and symptoms and also consider running some other testing such as serum antibodies for candida can be one way of looking for that or organic acid testing can also find hidden candida sometimes. Um, the thing I want to say is that her low secretory IgA, as we were just talking about, suggests that there might be some kind of adrenal uh, involvement, adrenal hormone involvement, and maybe a leaky gut that won't heal. Um, zonulin is only one marker of leaky gut. So I don't know if there was a zonulin on that test. And, it, and she's not mentioning it because it wasn't elevated. But sometimes people think that means that you don't have leaky gut. And zonulin is just one marker that could be elevated in leaky gut, but it could not be elevated and you could still have leaky gut. Um, and the low secretory IgA could also suggests some kind of chronic infection or overgrowth. So it's a key that I would follow up on there. There's something more to dig into there. So um, without knowing more about Sarah's diet or history, it's really hard to say because there's tons of, you know, quote unquote, healthy diets that could still be problematic for people, even within the umbrella of like a more paleo leaning diet. So for example, some people have histamine intolerance and like for a bulk of, there's a whole bunch of different reasons why that could happen, either genetics or significant mold toxins or, you know, something like that. And even within the paleo diaspora of foods, a lot of those can be high histamine. And if someone was sensitive to histamine, they could get like a spastic um, kind of diarrhea thing that happens. Um, anyway, it requires a little bit of digger, digging a little deeper there. So you mentioned 
candida can be different than fungal overgrowth. Do those have very similar symptoms or is that like what are the symptoms of candida overgrowth versus fungal overgrowth is or is that something that you just have to test and and know that that there's a difference there or does it even matter? Um, so candida would fall under the umbrella of fungal overgrowth. It is a fungi. It's a yeast, but yeast and a fungi. And so there's just other species. Um, that was what I meant to say is that they all would present really similarly, though, like the same, you know, it's often going to look similar to SIBO, like there's gas bloating, intolerance to certain foods, um, you know, maybe some diarrhea or constipation, um, often more on the constipation side of things, but um, uh, leaky gut type symptoms, which can be global, right? So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, Amantha asks nutrition, what to eat, what to avoid for the different protocols like SIBO, mold, toxicity, parasites, et cetera. Let's maybe just focus on SIBO. I know that's a lot. So let's just focus on SIBO because we are going to talk about mold in a little bit. So, so the, you used to do a lot of, okay. So I'm, I'm the SIBO guys, you did a lot of work with them and I know that they had their own. SIBO specific, like pretty restrictive protocol. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Talk to me about that. And it, should people follow a SIBO specific or a low FODMAP diet or not? Like, what do you oh my think gosh. about that? Okay. So this could be like three calls. <laughs> so, um, so I'm going to try to be real succinct here. And it's like, okay, Amanda, how much time you got? And do you really want to send me running down that pathway? You might get more information than you ever wanted. Um, no, I'm just joking. Um, so yeah, so just keeping it to SIBO. So here's the thing is there are like dozens of diets recommended for SIBO and it can be confusing. It can be it is overwhelming. It can be overwhelming for practitioners, right? So um, there's mainly the diets that are used are some version of low FODMAP or lower FODMAP uh, um, diets that are usually the ones used. And so there's definitely things like just the general low FODMAP diet. There's the um, cedar Sinai low fermentation diet. There's the SIBO-specific food guide um, from Allison, Dr. Allison Seebecker. There's biphasic diet, there's fast track, there's elemental. Okay, so I'm not going to do a whole class on all of these, but basically all of them tend to restrict the fermentable carbohydrates in some way. And essentially, we kind of start from the broad and then get more specific depending on kind of how severe someone's symptoms are. Um, So, you know, some people need to restrict all kinds of FODMAPs and some might only have sensitive with one or two of the subgroups, for example, like fructans or polyols. Um, And so then we can kind of help someone determine like, oh, actually, like, you know, I can't really do, you know, broccoli and garlic and onions, but like I do fine with apples or something like that, you know, and then it can be kind of, you can expand your food choices from there. Um, Then there's people who like the SCD diet, what you were talking about. um, That's actually, so um, it stands for specific carbohydrate diet. And it was, um, I think, introduced by um, Dr. Elaine Gottschall, you know, a long time ago. And it's that diet, I will tell you, um, you know, some people like it for SIBO in general. I like it really for the subset of people who just have chronic diarrhea. That's where I find that diet to be the most specific is when someone's like running to the bathroom anywhere from like four to 20 times a day. Um, and I think the thing about that diet is that I've had a lot of people come into my clinic saying like, I've done SCD. And what they basically did was went from paleo and then started to cut back the foods that they were allowed 
quote unquote on the diet. And it doesn't work when you do it that way. You have to do, there's like a phasing with that diet where you do like a, a couple of days of the intro diet, which really, really gives the gut a break and pairs things down and then introduces foods kind of systematically in this way over time to see what your tolerance is and to create a safe food list. Um, there are caveats to that diet where it really doesn't work for some people for reasons I'm not going to get go down a rabbit hole with, but just there's other things you could be reacting to that would make that diet not so successful. So in short, there's not like one perfect diet that works for all everyone who has SIBO. And you really require, you know, kind of some fancy footwork to help guide someone which diet's really probably going to be the easiest to travel and live your life with and like, you know, just kind of live on for the time that you need it. And when I say live on, that's another thing that, you know, is that the diet itself doesn't tend to, it's very rare, the case where just going on one of these diets resolves the issue. Um, I don't think they're good to be on long term. And by long term, I mean, I do have clients who are on some version of these for the better part of a year or something if we're having, if they're have like a, a case where you have to do repeat rounds of treatment, and those diets are minimizing their symptoms. Um, but you know, eventually we want to include some of the foods that are left out on those diets because those are prebiotic foods that are, you know, going to grow our healthy microbiome. So we do need those things. Um, and then the elemental diet is another kind of SIBO diet, but that is one exception to the kind of concept of the diet doesn't usually address the, the, the problem fully because the elemental diet is actually a prescribed diet that is often used to actually treat SIBO because so it's therapy in and of itself, but it's also nutrition for the person. And it's liquid, it's a liquid diet, and it's anti inflammatory. Um, and it's antibacterial. And it also allows the gut to have a break so that it can do some gut repair. Um, and that's a diet that's really should be done with a practitioner, I feel. Some people do it on their own, but I think it's best done with guidance. And usually it's done for two to three week period, but not longer than that. Um, so you have to make sure you're getting enough calories and nutrients while doing that. But it can be really, really effective for people with really stubborn SIBO or people who are just reacting to everything they eat. So the diet or the protocol that you have somebody on in terms of like restricting certain foods is really there to help manage symptoms while you actually, and also maybe help treat it partially while you're mm -hmm. treating SIBO with actual, you know, like medications or, or um, herbals or whatever that you prescribe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So it's like a it's an it's an in tandem thing, but it does seem like it's a it's a really good way to manage symptoms. However, it's not a way to solve anything for the well, majority of people for the majority of people. No. Yeah. Okay. Okay, this is from Christy. She says, what's the best route? So many tests and so many choices. So this question is in relation to SIBO. So if somebody thinks that they have SIBO, uh, are there a variety of tests that they can choose from? And what do you prioritize? Uh, okay, well, the first thing I'll reiterate, which I said before, is you cannot diagnose SIBO with a stool panel period. Um, there can be suggestions on stool panels that SIBO may be part of the picture, but you can't really diagnose it that way. And there's a couple reasons why you wouldn't want to. And some of the reasons that you can't diagnose it that way are because you just, in a sample, you can't be clear what's coming from the colon and what's coming from the small intestine. And SIBO, unlike other GI conditions, it's not like a parasite. It's not like something you pick up and you're trying to kill because there's like 
there can be more dysbiotic or less desirable bacteria involved, but it's not really, it's more about the bacteria being in the wrong place at the wrong time and why your body allowed that to happen, right? So yes, we need testing. And at this point in time, the, um, the lactulose and glucose breath testing is the best. And the right now, most people use the lactulose breath test. Um, that's what we primarily use in my practice. Although there's been times when I'll run a combo test with the glucose because the glucose test gets um, less false positives and also um, is better for diagnosing SIBO in the proximal or initial part of the small intestine. Um, so there's a couple reasons why both are valuable. Um, but those are basically where you're drinking a, a serum, a solution, um, after following a prep diet that really isn't fermentable so that we're getting a basic, you know, a very clear low baseline. And then we're having you drink the serum. And then the serum is made out of, um, well, the lactulose is sugar that's indigestible to humans. And so as it transits through the GI tract, it's fermentable by bacteria. And what we're seeing as you breathe out into a little tube or balloons um, during certain time intervals along uh, like a th th three hour window is we're seeing the reflection of the gas levels at that point in time. And that would indicate the bacterial populations in the small intestine, which should be fairly low. It's not sterile, but they should be fairly low. Um, and when they get above a certain threshold, it indicates that you have more bacteria there than should be. And so, you know, none of the current SIBO testing is 100% accurate. That's one thing we all have to know going into this. Um, both types of those testing can miss some types of SIBO. Um, the lactulose type can tend to overdiagnose some kinds occasionally. Um, and I've definitely found that the, the accuracy of the testing depends on the consistency of who's running it and the machines and how they're titrated and um, like that, you know. So I've seen people go get a test from like their local um, doctor and like, you know, wasn't maybe it's not that those can't be accurate, but sometimes I've seen those just because they're not running um, those labs in and all day in and day out all the time. Sometimes it's not quite as accurate or maybe the machine isn't calibrated or titrated or the, um, so anyway, um, I like to use Genova diagnostics for my SIBO tests. Um, but, uh, there's also Commonwealth labs and there's a couple aero diagnostics is a great lab as well. I believe. Sometimes it can also be user error, correct? Like somebody doesn't do yes. it right at home because you can do it at home. But, you know, it's, if you miss it, like it's kind of it's not complicated, but you just have to be on top of it. <laughs> you do have to prep and be on top of it. And, yeah. and you know, because I'm working with people remotely, most of our clients are doing them at home. So yeah. you can get really good results. But it does happen where they say like air contamination. And that's just frustrating because, mm. yeah. you know, you're either working without an answer at one of the time, one or more of the time slots or you have to redo it. Yeah. yeah. So. Got it. It can happen. Okay. This is from Sophia. This is the question we all <laughs> wish was was easy. Um, can SIBO go away on its own? Wasn't there a time before all of these tests that things just got better? Our world has changed so much and our guts are so destroyed that we need the intervention? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so if I'm really, really, really honest about this, I will say that we don't know the answer to that question. Um, and I suspect, you know, having worked with a number, like lots of cases over the years, I suspect that given the ideal circumstances and someone lowering their stress and working on their digestion in other ways and eating, you know, like it's possible. I think there's maybe some cases that have gotten dramatically better 
or theoretically improved over time. I can't say that I see that clinically, but also I have to admit that, you know, when someone comes to work with me, they're at the point of having this impact their life to the extent that they're seeking help. Right. So, so there's that. Um, but SIBO, one thing about it is it's not an infection. So I think that's something we really need to remember and, and keep stating because so what in order for SIBO, um, to develop, you know, it's, it's, so an infection means that there's like bacteria or organisms that don't belong in the body that are taking over. And SIBO is usually called by caused by commensal bacteria for the most part. Um, they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so if you treat SIBO like an infection, you're never really going to be able to resolve it. So what I mean by that is that to effectively resolve SIBO, you have to address the overgrowth. And there is definitely usually some kind of like killing with with um, drugs or, or botanicals or supplements involved, but you have to address the other factors that are disrupting the terrain or the ecosystem of the gut. You know, are there parasites? We have to clear those first because I don't see SIBO clearing well when people have these other kind of placeholder infections. Um, is there candida overgrowth? Well, don't expect your symptoms to be gone if that's not addressed, diagnosed and addressed as well. Do you have inadequate digestive secretions? You know, you're just going to regrow bacteria if some of those digestive secretions do things like help set our motility, like in the case of bile, or help set like the pH, um, which allows or disempowers bacteria from growing in certain area. And those need to be, those are part of resolving SIBO. Um, is your immune system suppressed from stress or from other things? We got to support that. Um, and also like motility, right? Because SIBO at its core, it's, it's, um, it evolves because there's a change in motility that allows the bacteria to start growing in the small intestine. And so there's a lot of factors that could be impacting what's called the migrating motor complex, which is the part of our motility that are these small housekeeping waves that happen when we're in a relatively fasted state. And if those aren't happening, if that's not intact, then we're not sweeping undigested food and bacteria and cellular debris down into the large intestine. Um, so like there's a whole bunch of drivers of those, you know, some of them are like Hashimoto's and diabetes. Um, the main driver of SIBO, like the, you know, overwhelming majority is some um, past experience of food poisoning. Um, but then there's things like mold and um, tick-borne diseases like Lyme. There's a whole bunch of other diseases, um, essentially, that could be like background drivers of the SIBO. Um, so, so that's so the there. number one cause that you see in your practice is prior food poisoning? Definitely. And what I'll say about that is sometimes people don't really remember or it wasn't severe enough for them to know. But there's this whole way that um, there are antibodies that are created. Um, basically, there's toxins that are um, secreted by the um, bacteria when you get the food poisoning. And then our body um, creates response to those toxins and creates antibodies. And then those antibodies actually paralyze the fibers of the nerves that innervate those parts and, and some parts of the um, mucosal barrier. And yeah, so actually, there's a way where if you have, there's actually a test for this. Um, one of them is called IBS check, but there's a whole bunch of different versions of it that essentially shows that you have the antibodies to these um, uh, toxins in, and that if you have, and to the fibers, and if you have those, then you, you can assume that some 
amount of your symptomology is related to having or having had SIBO. And it's actually kind of an autoimmune presentation. Wow. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. Um, okay, this is from Sarah Yeaton. Thoughts on biofilm in the gut preventing effective treatment of SIBO. I need to get rid of the biofilm first, and I'm currently being treated for that and would love to hear someone else's thoughts. Also, can SIBO cause weight gain or hinder weight loss? Mm, okay, okay, cool questions. So yeah, biofilm. So here's another little gem. Um, I think part of the reason that, so this isn't exactly her question, but we're talking about biofilms. So I tend to, um, unless someone doesn't tolerate them, I tend to have people take biofilm disruptors for one to two weeks prior to running stool testing, because we find that we get a lot more accurate results that way. So a lot of times someone will come into my practice and say, well, I've already run one, two, three stool tests. And then I ask them, well, did you take biofilm disruptors prior? And usually the answer is no. So that's kind of a little thing for people to consider. Um, but also, um, yeah, biofilms can definitely be involved in SIBO. And I will say that, um, you know, obviously I don't have a way to test for biofilms, but we suspect them when we have someone with recalcitrant case, although there can be other causes for this. So, um, I'll usually involve biofilm disruptors when someone is like, when it's not their first time at the SIBO rodeo, basically when they've been treating it multiple rounds or when they're known to have multiple infections, like they've had a couple parasites and the SIBO and candida or fungal overgrowth, you know, then we'll kind of assume that they're all in cahoots and have biofilms that are helping them all, you know, um, party on and protect themselves from what we're trying to do. So yeah, there's some great, there's a lot of different biofilm disruptors that can be used. Um, you know, some of the ones that I like are like biofilm defense, but Kirkman or interface plus, um, there's, um, another one by, um, well, there's one that's used more for hydrogen sulfide type SIBO. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. So anyway, there's different ones you might use for different kinds, but, um, that does happen. And I don't think it's a hundred percent of the time. Now, um, the weight gain question. So yes, I've seen SIBO both cause like weight loss that's unwanted and also cause weight gain or hinder weight loss. Um, and largely that is related to inflammation, but also there's a dynamic between, um, SIBO and kind of chicken and the egg with insulin resistance and also with hypothyroidism. So we know that there's a strong correlation of SIBO and Hashimoto's in particular. And that just simply is that, you know, thyroid hormone is part of what, um, allows for motility and, and, and mo the motility in the gut. And so if we have low thyroid hormone, then we're going to, you know, easily get low motility and that can easily contribute to SIBO. Um, so yeah, the weight gain would be more of like an insulin resistance thing. And that's kind of something called, um, metabolic endotoxemia. Um, so you can even have a low grade version of that and just have like a slight version of insulin resistance where you're just a little bit less carb tolerant, but you're not actually pre-diabetic or anything. Um, there's been studies on that actually. And, um, so it's your immune response becomes kind of persistent and low grade chronic inflammation because of the circulating toxins that are given off by the bacteria, primarily lipopolysaccharides. And those are components of the bacterial cell walls for the gram negative bacteria. And then this kicks off your immune system. Um, that 
And then that can that inflammation can lead to um, blood sugar instability and insulin resistance. So many things. <laughs> you just, you literally yeah. are so, there are so many <laughs> knowledge bombs, but I'm like, I need to get to the other questions. But like, okay, so you keep talking about motility. Uh, I did get a question from Kearney Mama Life. She says, are there any supplements to increase motility? She specifically has recovered from SIBO and she says it's more of a genetic thing from her. So it seems like people who struggle with um, SIBO and or hypothyroidism, they might have this as like potentially an issue. It could potentially cause an issue again in the future. Like, is there a supplement that you recommend for that? Absolutely. So yeah, first of all, I would say like, hey, have you tested your thyroid? And I mean, full panel, have you ruled out things like diabetes? You know, like there's all kinds of other reasons why that might be true or run in a family. Um, And so, um, but prokinetics are supplements or agents that increase motility. Some of them are, are herbal and like supplements, and some of them are actually prescription drugs. And you use different ones for different reasons. But those are always 100% of the time part of the post SIBO like follow up and treatment um, in order for it to be complete and not regrow. Um, so, um, sometimes there's some like, there's different, again, there's different, like if you're more on the constipated side of things, some of the brands or products we might use would be things like Motel Pro, um, SIBO hyphen MMC, which is I think by priority one, Motility Activator is another one. And, and different people do better with some of those than others. A little bit of that is comes down to guess and check or trial and error. Um, and then if people have SIBO, but they have more of a diarrhea presentation, we're going to use um, more things like um, carminative herbs, like what's in, um, there's a formulation called Iberogast that's classically used for that presentation. Okay. Um, I'm going to do this question about mold and then we'll see if we can um, knock out like rapid fire, just the questions about testing. But let's do this one quickly from Andrea. She says, I live in a house with mold in it and we think that it's what caused my SIBO along with heavy antibiotic use as a child. I'm stuck in a house in this house for another six to 10 months because I'm a military family. My current functional medicine doctor and conventional doctor do not know how to help me anymore because I'm not getting better with anything they've tried with me. I also have PCOS and Hashimoto. I think it's I think of going to a SIBO specialist, but before I pay the money, I'm wondering if I should be out of this moldy environment. And is there anything that I can do to get better while still in the environment? Side question, if there is time for this, is it a bad idea to try to get pregnant while having SIBO? Mm. Okay. Well, you know, we want to unpack this a little bit. So there's the pieces I just want to acknowledge without diving deep that there's the pieces pieces about Hashimoto's, which is, you know, an autoimmune thyroid uh, condition that usually leads to more of a low thyroid presentation, low hypothyroid. And then there's the PCOS, which by definition, um, there's many types of PCOS, but all of them do have in common um, issues with insulin sensitivity. So we already kind of touched upon how, upon how those can also be playing a role, right? So those aren't distinct and separate from this is all I want to say about that. Um, about the mold. So if you know that you have, so you live in a house with mold, I would definitely recommend actually running urinary mycotoxin testing to determine that the mold, you know, is, are you harboring mycotoxins in the body? Because that definitely in, in my clinical experience needs to be treated and resolved prior to 
um, the SIBO being able to be resolved. Um, again, mycotoxins do a lot of things in the body to people who are having immune reactions to them or who are less tolerant to them. But one of the things is, you know, definitely there's neurological impacts. And of course, you know, neurological impacts can impact motility, right? So, um, and also suppress the immune system. There's a whole bunch of ways that that can happen. So um, if you have a high level of mycotoxins and you are ill to it from it, like having an immune response, I would say that it, you can't really treat the SIBO while still being exposed. And you actually can't really treat the mycotoxins fully while still being exposed. Um, so there's definitely things you can do to help mitigate, such as like air filters and spending as much time outside as possible. Um, you know, and you can do things to help with the symptoms from SIBO and kind of manage. But I don't know that I will say that I've seen those situations resolve while still exposed to, to significant amounts of mold. Um, and then in terms of pregnancy, though, you know, okay, so here's the thing about pregnancy is um, I wouldn't say that it's it's always convenient, right? So, so um, you know, it's ideal that SIBO is resolved, but I've also treated tons of women who had SIBO or other GI issues, you know, while they were pregnant, either they discovered them and then like got pregnant partway through the treatment or discovered them and knew they were about to do IVF and didn't want to embark on treatment with those kinds of herbs at the moment or found out they had the issues while pregnant, you know. So I, we, I don't tend to see it, um, SIBO fully resolve during pregnancy, but there are some things that you can take during pregnancy safely um, that can either kind of hold it steady and, and then you can work on it after. Um, so some of the safer things are like um, Allison, which is from garlic, um, and Iberogast, which is the prokinetic, um, that's helpful for bloating and more of a, di a diarrhea pattern and ginger actually up to pretty high doses, like 2000 milligrams a day can be used. And that's a good prokinetic, especially for more of a diarrhea pattern. Um, and then there's other treatments that are safer once they're more compatible with breastfeeding. So while you might not be able to actively treat during pregnancy, there's some options that can be on the safer side in with lactation, um, especially when you're further out, like when you're like eight, nine, 12 months, um, and when the baby is older and therefore probably nursing less frequently. Okay. So we have a couple quick questions about testing. One from Stephanie, which I'm going to answer because I know now that Bree has told us what to do if stool tests reveal nothing wrong and diet changes are not helping. Uh, one, you work with Bree and, um, and you get a breath test done because that doesn't necessarily, that's not going to show up on a GI test. Okay. So, um, but to that point, we also have a couple that are very specific to the differences between dysbiosis and SIBO, which I just is like a final thing I kind of want to touch on. This question is from Sarah. She says, I'm RWS certified and we're trained to eradicate any dysbiosis and heal the gut before testing for SIBO because oftentimes the healing and repopulating of the gut with good bacteria wipes out the SIBO. What is your thoughts on this? So is SIBO different from dysbiosis and how so? And do you treat those together or one before the other? Like, I, I feel like a lot of people are saying like, well, my SIBO test was negative, but then I have this dysbiosis. Is it a, like, what are the protocol differences there? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so... Location, location, location. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, SIBO. So SIBO is a 
technically a type of dysbiosis. Dysbiosis can be a very general term for like any of the kinds of infections we'd or overgrowths we see in the gut. But definitely dysbiosis tends to more specifically refer to um, like if we're talking about colonic dysbiosis, which is the kind you would see on a stool test. And, you know, I'll say that you can see some of the bacteria that would um, be suggested in SIBO higher in higher levels, like you could see methanobacter brevi kind of elevated on a stool test and go, hmm, there, this might indicate that you have a methane dominant SIBO, but you can't conclude that because you naturally have high levels of methanobacter in your colon and they should be there. So you really can't distinguish. So what I'll say again is like, that goes back to the, like, you know, are we talking about bad bacteria or are we talking about, you know, bacteria gone wild? Like they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so yeah, we want to distinguish those before we really understand what we're doing. That said, Sarah is right in the sense that I agree with her that this is why I always run stool testing first, because you're going to want to treat like if you have overt parasites, if you have Giardia, if you have Entamoeba histolytica, if you have any number of organisms living there that are just not supposed to be there, you want to treat those. And then we also tend to treat um, the way I was trained from the upper GI down, meaning if there's H. pylori, um, you know, that's a distinct overgrowth, we're probably going to treat that first because it while it can live in other places, it tends to colonize more in the stomach and proximal part of the small intestine. So we want to like handle that first. Um, and so some treatments can be combined, but typically we're going to kind of like um, layer these sequentially and roll from one into the other and shift them as we're, we're working through pieces. And so she's right in the sense that like, let's say you have somebody with a parasite and, you know, um, well, let's just say that some of the herbs that you're going to use to treat parasites or that you could use if you're going an herbal route are going to have general, you know, plants are just amazing. They have all these phytochemicals. And so they don't just do one thing, right? They're not like, like drugs. And um, so a lot of times, some of the things you might use to treat a parasite are going to have activity against some of the overgrown bacteria. And it's possible that if you have maybe a lower grade case um, or just more responsive type for whatever reason, that maybe those treatments would handle the SIBO. So often what I do is I don't necessarily, even if I strongly suspect SIBO with someone, if they really haven't had any testing done and we're just starting from scratch, I sometimes wait to run the SIBO breath test because I'm going to prioritize that stool panel first. And the truth is, if we find something on there, we're going to need to treat that first. And so I kind of want to get the testing for the level of SIBO when we're going to treat it. So maybe their symptoms are fully resolved and they're feeling great, in which case we move on and we do gut repair. We don't necessarily need to start going down the SIBO rabbit hole. But maybe we treat a couple of things that show up on the stool panel and someone gets like partial symptomatic improvement or a whole lot of it. And then we maybe test SIBO for, you know, if we still suspect it and go from there. Free, you're the best. (laughs) I was just like, oh, my gosh, that was uh, amazing. Um, I think I just actually visually kind of, I don't know, it, you're, the way you talked about it, I visually was able to kind of see it and see how you would treat things from a much different, from a much clearer perspective. I love that. Um, I know you had mentioned that you have a SIBO like resource that people, so say somebody is just trying to figure out what's going on. Um, can you tell us what that SIBO resource is? And then are you do you currently work with people online and are you accepting patients and all that kind of stuff? 
Sure. So <laughs> I have a, a SIBO guidebook that's basically okay. what the heck is SIBO and how does it happen? Um, and what can I do about it and all those things. And it's, it's concise. It's not like a, you know, hundred page ebook. It's I think 10 or 12 pages, but of some really potent info. And I'll, gi- I'll give you the link so that we can have that below in the show notes or however you want to have that. And people can go grab that. And then, yeah, absolutely. I'm working with people. Um, so yeah, I've been working online, still working online. And we work with people all over the US, but also outside of the US uh, to the best of our ability. And um, I have, it's myself. And also I have um, two doctors working with me and um, a health coach and a whole team of, of people who help us to help you get better. And we're definitely accepting clients and would love to support anyone. Yep. And I can um, just tell everybody too, Brie is, is a little bit more affordable as, as in comparison to some of the other people that you may have approached. Functional medicine, it's no um, nothing new. It can be expensive. And I, I one of the questions that I answer a lot in our Facebook group is like, well, where do I get this testing done and how do I budget for it? And I hear you. And it's so hard when you have something that you are really struggling with and you want to get help, but it's like thousands and thousands of dollars just to see somebody. Um, and so what I really appreciate about Brie and her practice is that it is a, is more accessible. Um, and so I really appreciate you coming on, Brie, and sharing all of this information and making all of this information free and also making yourself available to our community to help them further down the line if they <laughs> have more complicated <laughs> issues. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. We could have talked for hours and it's an honor. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. And and we'll have you the next time you need to write a book. I know you're going to do it. So when you write a book or whatever you do next, please come back on. We, I know we could talk about hormones. You're so knowledgeable in so many things. So we'll definitely have you back on. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. I'll look forward to it. Okay, so all, you. you're welcome. All Bree's things are going to be in the show notes. I'm going to go ahead and link to that SIBO guidebook and some of the things that she mentioned. Also, her website and her Instagram. Go follow her. For more from me, you can go to coconutsandkettlebells.com. Make sure to, um, if you're looking for recipes, which I know you are because it's back to school and we all need easy bulk recipes, you can get my cookbook, Coconuts and Kettlebells. It's on Amazon. Or you can go to coconutsandkettlebells.com slash book. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for being here. We will talk to you next week.